Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. If you want to learn useful, practical how-tos of weight loss, exercise science, nutrition, or just how to optimize your time in the gym and life, this show is for you. Welcome everyone to Project Fitness Podcast. Today we have another special guest. Today our special guest is actually the creator of the barbellrehab.com website, a physical therapist by education, and someone who plays with the barbell lifts himself and has been coaching and correcting people for many years who've fallen into categories of injury. <laughs> Today we have Dr. Michael Mash. So uh, doctor, should I call you Do- Dr. Mash or just Mike? Like what's you the best go. way to go about it? Yeah, you can go right with Michael. That that works for me. Okay, okay. Welcome to the podcast. It's uh, it's nice to have you on here. And today we're going to talk a little bit about barbells and 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 what you do. But I'm always interested, you know, hosting um, a fitness health related podcast. Everyone's story, kind of like where where do they start? You're a physical therapist. I'm sure you just didn't roll out of bed in high school and one day say, "I want to start lifting some weights and be a physical therapist." Yeah. So where does your story kind of start and begin? It's an interesting story, actually. And first, thanks for having me on. Um, It's always exciting to meet new people. And I know we've sort of chatted before this. So um, I wanted to thank you. Um, But yeah, my story is pretty interesting. At least I think it is. Um, I was a high school baseball player. Um, So I was your typical freshman year, 130 pound string bean, looking to add some uh, miles per hour to his fastball. And uh, at that time, was lucky enough to have an athletic trainer at the school who was very uh, barbell lifting, general strength forward. And uh, I I asked him, I was like, how do I throw faster? He's like, well, we're going to have you do these deadlifts. I'm like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why? Like, how are deadlifts going to make me throw faster? So um, he got me involved. And I'll never forget that day was the first time I did a 135 pound like rack pull, um, <laughs> just like right below the knee. And I'm like, this is kind of neat. So what ended up happening was I, I fell in love with like training, training just to train versus training for baseball. And I remember, um, like in before season getting ready for the season and I'm like ripping one rep maxes on, on deadlifts and the rest of the baseball team's looking at me like, why, why are you doing that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just like the adrenaline rush is fun. So, um, yeah, so I got into training that way, um, towards the end of my high school career career, if you want to call it that, I don't know. Um, (laughs) um, I actually got hurt, uh, overused throwing injury. So I went through the rounds of physical therapy and I was like, you know what? I kind of like this. And I was like, I like lifting. And there was a couple physical therapists that I went to that were anti-lifting. And I was like, that's not the way. I envision this should be. And then I met a couple fitness forward, strength training forward, physical therapists. And I was like, I can definitely get with this. So it was around my junior, senior high school. I said, I'm going to go to PT school. And after that, I'm going to enter the profession with a strength forward mindset. And after that, it was, that's where it all started. So baseball. Oh, very cool. Baseball is not so big here in Canada. I mean, we only got our one major team and <laughs> and they only tend to do good about every five or six years, it feels like. Oh, um, but that's a very interesting point that you brought up that there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes between 
the therapist, and then the strength and conditioning coach. And you said you want to be a little bit of both as you, as you work yourself together. Can you talk a little bit more about why you think that is? I mean, you went to school in school. Are they telling you, you know, lifting weights is bad. Like, why is there a bit of a disconnect between the two professions? Gotcha. Um, mainly what you said there. So I graduated PT school in 2016. So I'm about five years out. And I mean, even back then it wasn't very strength and conditioning wasn't very prevalent in the physical therapy community. I didn't learn anything about weightlifting my entire physical therapy, like in physical therapy school at all. And with, um, sorry, with physical therapy or the majority of people you're working with, are these people who just have injuries or are these gym related injuries, sport related injuries? Me specifically or the career itself? I guess the career. Gotcha. So the career is super vast. You can go from anywhere from helping people uh, walk that are in the hospital, like that come in with um, any kind of like, <clears throat> excuse me, heart, lung issues that are in the hospital. So there's therapists in the hospital getting people up and moving. There's therapists that go into the home to help people after they've had surgery and now they're at home to outpatient therapy, which is what the, the mainstream idea of physical therapy is. Hey, you go to a clinic, you get stronger. Maybe you had an injury, mm-hmm. you had a knee surgery. Um, but now within the last five years, there's this big push for this hybrid model where when I was treating, I'm no longer treating anymore. Actually, I'm full on uh, in the educational sector. Um, right. When I was treating, it was uh, out of a gym, right? So these, there's this push in the physio, physiotherapy, physical therapy community where a hey, physical therapist opens up a small clinic in a gym and is servicing those members to help keep them healthy. So the, the field itself of physical therapy is pretty neat because it's so vast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I was treating, I was working with uh, mainly just strength athletes, not really specifically powerlifters or CrossFit, like not very niche. I was just working with strength athletes. It could have been your um, dad in their fifties that like to lift in their basement and they tweak mm. their back and they come to me. Um, so that was really my niche was just helping people get back, helping the average adult get back to lifting weights. So with, with, when you're in school, are they telling you, you guys, weightlifting is bad. Heavy lifting is bad. Cause I mean, you know, I and anyone listening has probably dealt with an injury from exercise at one point, and they may have, they may have gone and seen someone who said, you know, don't squat. It's bad for your knees. Lifting weights is bad for your back. There's Mm -hmm. a, there's a disconnect. Why is there a disconnect? Um, and I, and I, I think it's getting better. So when I was in school, it, it wasn't taught, but it also wasn't demonized. I mean, I can remember offhand a couple of times where I might've asked questions like, well, what do you think about deadlifts or squats? And what you said was handed out like, oh, I wouldn't be loading up a patient with a deadlift that they could make their back pain worse. Or, oh, somebody coming in with, uh, I don't know, uh, like a meniscus tear or post meniscectomy, why would you squat them? So yeah, that was there, but I know, and I'm keeping like, I'm making sure I keep tabs on students that are in PT school right now, and it is getting much better. And I think it's just because of a lack of either the professors themselves don't do it, or it's just one of those things that's just passed down from generation to generation, right? Mm -hmm. Deadlifts are bad for your back, squats are bad for your knees. So it just sort of enters this common language. But I'm I'm very proud that the profession as a whole is getting a lot better. Yeah, where I'm located here in Ottawa, Ontario, 
I got a referral network. There's certain people that, that mm-hmm. do quite well. And, you know, I've got my clientele when something acts up outside of my scope, I, I push them off to work with someone specific. Yeah. And I am seeing that there is a little bit more, you know, in my realm of people who are working with people who lift weights and then they get an injury maybe in lifting weights or in life, they help them out. But I mean, man, I, I remember, you know, years ago, one of my clients and she'll probably be listening to this one here, hypermobile. So she can sit on the floor right? So, so very lax, very lax. Then she was getting some adductor pain mm-hmm. and uh, she went and saw a therapist and they said, uh, well, show me how you squat. And she's like, well, like you got to keep your shin vertical. And, and this lady can sit on her ankles, right? So she's got that, you know, uh, Russian weightlifting yeah. style, crazy dorsiflexion. <laughs> yeah. So she's, she kept trying to do it and she kept falling. Gotcha. She's like, I yeah. can't, I can't squat the way you want me to, or I fall. And the therapist she was working with says, well, that's how you squat. Yeah. Was that ever in a textbook when you were in school? Did you ever see that in a textbook or was that just mis- misinformation? Uh, I've never seen it in a textbook, but I mean, you hear it all the time, right? Don't let your knees come over your toes. And uh, I, as, as a profession, again, we're, we're getting so much better. I don't see that as much anymore on social media. Mm-hmm. When I got into the social media game back in early 2016, that's when I started the Barbell Rehab account was February 2016. Man, even we were we were all saying it, right? Like, because you just hear it. You're like, mm-hmm. don't squat with, don't let your knees come past your toes or you'll, you'll hurt your knees. I mean, even I I'll be honest, I was saying that even a little bit five, six years ago, just because that's what we, we heard. And I, as more evidence came out, um, and as more, more of us started realizing, Hey, we shouldn't be like demonizing these positions and movements. Uh, we, we all made a rapid shift, at least the ones, at least the ones of us that were paying attention to the current trends. So, Mm -hmm. but I haven't seen it in a textbook. Yeah, I, I I would like to see it. I remember there was a it was an eighty four study. It was like fry or something. Knees don't go past toes. Then it was you know uh, proven wrong a few years later. And then for some reason it's just stuck in a lot of professions. Yeah, for whatever reason. For sure. Um. So yeah, that's kind of where you where you started. You graduated, and then how did you go from graduation to getting right into? I'm working with. I'm, I'm assuming you were a lot of powerlifters, hence the barbell uh, rehab course. Gotcha. So when I actually, and a lot of people don't know this, and I've said this uh, publicly on a couple different podcasts, when I came out of school, I took a full-time job at an outpatient facility that was hospital-based. So I worked a ton there with a lot of people that had orthopedic surgeries, knee replacements, hip replacements, uh, ACL repairs, meniscectomies, you name it. So I got a ton of experience there with working with the general population. So the whole idea that barbell rehab treats powerlifters is actually not, uh, is not a thing, right? I, I thought initially that I wanted to do that because I did a deadlift only competition when I was in 2018 and I, and I liked training the big three and I still mm-hmm. do squat bench deadlift. I like training the big three, but as far, I mean, you took the online course and as you, as you saw, I mean, we, we teach how to coach these three lifts and how to modify them for people with pain, but just because it's squat bench dead, doesn't make it powerlifting specific. Obviously those are the three lifts that powerlifters do, mm-hmm. but, um, anybody can really do them. You don't have to be a powerlifter. So a lot of my experience was working with general population and I was fortunate that at that facility, they had barbells, they had dumbbells. So a lot of my experience comes from actually re, uh, promoting barbell free weight work with the general population as opposed to powerlifters. But 
when I did migrate to my cash practice and when I was treating cash based, that's when I was working primarily with people that were coming. And I just mentioned this, uh, your 50-year-olds that train in the basement. And then there was CrossFitters, uh, powerlifters mixed in there as well. So do you find using the barbell lifts, you actually use them in a rehab protocol? So when, when I started barbell rehab, it was this idea that I wanted to, everybody to lift with barbells. Mm. And I've, I've become a little bit more open-minded since then, because I don't think everybody needs to train with barbells. I think mm. everybody... Well, we know everybody should be strength training. I mean, the World Health Organization recommends two times a week minimum strength training for everybody. And uh, so I've sort of migrated from forcing barbells down everybody's throat to, hey, this is a tool. This allows us to load uh, over a long range of motion incrementally uh, with mul like compound lifts, multi-joint movements. Mm -hmm. uh, so the barbell is my preferred tool, but it's not the only tool. Did I answer your question? I feel like I went on a tangent there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, said, you, you said yes and no. <laughs> yeah. One of those, it depends, right? Yeah, which is everywhere in this industry yeah. now, which is true. It's, it's better than black and whites. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, with Barbell um, as using that as a, as a tool at some certain points, you've probably identified this can help someone, this can hurt someone. But when you work with people who are getting hurt, like one of, one of my takeaways on the course uh, that I took with you was you looked at so many different aspects of the lift. Okay, this is how you do the lift. Now, now if you're getting hurt here, this assessment generally states it's probably this, this, or this. So here's the modification that you would need to be doing. If someone is into this category, they're going to lift mm -hmm. like this because of this. Barbells are one-dimensional, right? And for yeah. some reason, people think they need to adapt or adopt one style only. But what I really liked about your course is, no, 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 no. You need to adapt it and adjust it for the individual specifically. So do you for think sure. it's much more uh, prevalent for a lot of people to use barbells, but you got to make it specific to your body type? Exactly. So I think you hit the nail on the head there. So like we have this idea of generally what a squat looks like, what a deadlift looks like, but we can't be afraid to modify things based on how the client or the patient is responding. So as you saw, like with squatting, um, five, six years ago, I was making everybody squat with a moderate stance, 30 degree toe out, because that's just what I was taught. That's just the way I thought it was. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you start to realize, oh, somebody has hip pain with that position, what do you do? Well, maybe you can widen the stance a little bit. Maybe you can narrow the stance a little bit. Maybe you can adjust the foot flare. And these tiny modifications with this lift or with any lift can drastically change somebody's pain experience. So we need to make sure that, yes, there needs to be some sort of form we stick to. Like when it comes to a bench press, you don't want to bench press to your neck like I know that's an assistance lift, right? The, the Geronda press, I believe. Um, but there, there needs to be some sort of form that we deem acceptable. And then we can vary within that range kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So in your time, you've probably identified and noticed that a lot of commonalities. So when you're exactly. working with, with, with different people, let's look at all three of the big barbell lifts. What are some of the common injuries that people are running into with the squat? So I would say with the squat, the big two, the number one would be hip pain with squats. You see it all the time. That dreaded, you get to the bottom and it feels like somebody's like stabbing a knife into the front of your hip. Mm -hmm. And everybody jumps to, oh, it must be my hip flexor. Like my hip flexor is tight because it feels like that. It really feels like that. So I've gone through that. I've gone through that for years. I no longer deal with it, but 
I mismanaged it for the longest time. I couldn't tell you how many times I cranked on my hip flexor to just stretch, stretch, stretch. Um, but when you realize it at the bottom of the squat, the hip flexor is not actually being lengthened. It's being compressed and shortened. So if you have hip pain during squats at the bottom of the squat, it, it can't be due to a tight, like physiologically short hip flexor. It's more likely something going on in the joint. So, um, we can, we can call it femoroacetabular impingement. There's all kind of different hip impingements, another word. Um, but what it really comes down to is everybody's hip joint is built a little differently and you really need to find that stance that jives with you. So I would say hip pain with squats is the number one thing I would see with squats and most likely due to the, the client hasn't found their ideal stance yet. That's just one. Obviously there's a bunch of different things that can cause hip pain during squats, but that would probably be the predominant one. But, and then let's keep going with hips here because okay. I mean, like I was born with my mother's hips. We got the same hips, but I don't got dad's hips. So our hips are a little bit different. My dad and mine, Okay. when you, when you see someone who's developing hip pain, they've got different hips. Can you just go over maybe the different types of hips? You talked about this in the course and it was quite interesting. Yeah. So everybody has different like anatomy at their hips. We use the term version and that's sort of how the femur or the leg bone is rotated on the hip joint. So some people's are uh, rotated outwards and we call that retroversion and some people's are rotated inwards and that's called antiversion. And what we found is that sometimes or a lot of times this correlates to how somebody prefers to squat. And the majority of the times, uh, if the client hasn't been told like you need to squat with your toes forward or you need to squat this way, they intuitively find it out. They find out that, oh, if I squat narrow with my toes forward, it doesn't feel good. So intuitively they'll, they'll widen it and they'll turn their toes out and it feels better. So what we found is these, these retroverted individuals tend to be more comfortable with more foot flare because if they try and squat with a narrow stance, toes forward, they're going to feel like that pinch at the bottom because that's just the joint running out of range of motion based on how the structure is. On the flip side, these folks that are extremely antiverted do better with a more narrow toes forward stance. And I'm saying generally because obviously there's other factors, ankle mobility, soft tissue length, all play the factor. But when it really boils down to it, hip anatomy matters. And um, this isn't really something that we screen for. Uh, if, if somebody's not having hip pain and they come to you like as a, uh, they come to you, your strength coach, this isn't something where I say, okay, we need to assess your hips to see where, whether you're retroverted or introverted, you can just usually find where they feel best. But when pain is present, that's when I start digging like, okay, you have hip pain. Let's see. Are you retroverted? Are you introverted? This gives me some information on what stance may be a little bit better for one versus another. Some people just, they dive right into straight feet, narrow stance. You say, show me a squat. They just jump right into it. Um, yeah. Where's that come from? Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to name drop anybody, but uh, there are a couple big people in the fitness industry over the last 10 years who have taught that you need to squat with your toes forward. Um, and I think it really stems from a, the, some of these older mentalities of these uh, big names in the fitness industry that have been promoting this for years. And it's sort of just trickled into mainstream lifters where, well, no, like you can't turn your toes out. So-and-so says you need to squat with it forward. So I think that's really where it comes from. Um, but 
even, I think it's gotten a lot better. People are now realizing, Hey, there's more than one way to do this. And just because my squat looks a little bit different than somebody else's doesn't make it wrong or more right. It's just the way it is. Right. Yeah. And that's really cool about the industry is we're such a novice industry. I mean, like fitness health is, you know, Mm -hmm. we've been around 30 to 40 years. If you compare that to chemistry, how long has chemistry been around hundreds of years, thousands of years, right? So we are absolute babies. And it's nice to see that it's actually evolving as we go on. Mm -hmm. Because I remember back in my early days, it was the same thing. Everyone's got to go heel toe straight line. That's what we were, we were taught. But you Mm -hmm. know, in your position, you you bang on with the anatomy there, everyone's nice, a little bit different. So you talked about the hips being different, and we have to adjust for that. And that's being one of the injuries that you tend to see with squatting. What's the other site or other area? Um, we could either go down the knee pain route or the back pain route, which one I can't really name which one would be two or which one would be three. Which one do you want to go down? Let's go down with both. Start with the knee. Okay. So knee pain during squats also happens. And I think one of the biggest reasons it happens would be what we just call in the industry, like a load management error. So we used to blame knee pain during squats. And we just touched on this uh, 10, 15 minutes ago. We used to blame it on, oh, you're letting your knees travel too far forward. This overloads the knee joint. Therefore you get injured or you have pain. But what we've come to realize is the body's highly adaptable to these different positions. So it's most, most likely not that you're the, the position. It's just the person wasn't ready for that position yet. Let me give you a prime example. I worked with, I worked with a recreational powerlifter once who was like low bar squat, posterior chain, everything sumo deadlift, low bar squat, like didn't like using his knees. Right. <laughs> so then he came to me. He's like, all of a sudden I just, both of my knees were on fire. And so I looked at his squat, his squat looks good. So once I look at form and I don't see any kind of glaring issues there, the next thing I always look at is programming. So I said, have you changed anything in the last, I don't know, six to eight weeks about your programming? He said, come to think of it. Yeah. About four weeks ago, I dosed in five sets of 10 safety bar squats with an upright torso. I'm like, well, well, there you go. (laughs) And so you, your body was, was not adapted to that knee forward position at all. And mm-hmm. then you dosed in a high volume, you dosed in a high volume variation that does safety bar squats carried up higher, more vertical torso, more knee forward. So he, we can't blame it on the exercise. We have to blame it on the dosage. So my guess was, and I told him this, I said, there's nothing wrong with the safety bar squat. There's nothing wrong with allowing the knees to come forward. You just got to take it in baby steps. You, you have to, if this is a newer stimulus for you, you can't just do five sets of 10 high intensity, high volume out of nowhere. So I, I'm a big, I'm a big believer. And I think the, uh, the, the general consensus is now that Injuries happen when your body is not prepared for the stimulus. It's more or less that versus actually getting into these positions that we've been demonizing for years. That's very admirable of you to say that, you know, in your scope of practice, you will actually ask to see the programming when sometimes we think of therapists, they treat, they're just treating, they're not looking at what you've done before. And I spoke with um, a functional medicine doctor, a friend of mine, Owen Lacey earlier on. and, And he says, when he deals with nutrition, the first thing he says is he's got to get an idea of what the person's been eating. So he's got to look at their previous nutrition first before he makes any recommendations. And in fitness, 
you sounds like you do the exact same thing. Well, let me look at your program. I don't think that's very common. People say, oh, this hurts because you're doing it like that. But you're yeah. absolutely right. If you just go from not doing narrow stance, you know, knee flexion, dominant squats to all mm-hmm. of a sudden 50 reps, you know, two or three times a week, that's going to cause a change. Yeah. And it's, and it's unfortunate because we end up blaming the exercise versus blaming the way it was prescribed. Think about it this way. If, I mean, I'm not a medical physician, but think about it this way. If somebody gets put on a new medication, they go to the physician and they say, Hey, I had side effects. A lot of times they just won't scrap the medication right off the bat. They'll adjust the dosage. Right? Mm. So, I mean, we can do the same thing with the exercise. We have to look at the dosage. Um, so we need to adjust that first. And if, if we can control symptoms by adjusting the dosage, then we know that, Hey, it was more of a dosage issue versus a positional thing. And you mentioned that the body can adapt over time. Correct. So if, if I'm listening and I'm new to fitness and I'm new to exercise so far, my takeaways are if I get hip pain, maybe it's my stance when I squat. Mm-hmm. And then if I get knee pain, maybe it's the amount of forward knee track, um, um, uh, traction that's actually going on or knee dominant style squats. Maybe I just need to build up a bit of a tolerance to that. Am I right to say those? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we could go down that other path now of, in my, in my uh, opinion, this whole idea of training needing to be 100% pain-free is kind of like a misnomer because your body can adapt to low levels of pain. So, I mean, the, the current research and I wouldn't be able to name drop the author at this time. It's just not in the front of my brain, but especially when we're working with individuals that have pain, you on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being the worst pain imaginable, zero being no pain. It's been shown that you can train into that three to four out of 10 pain, as long as the pain subsides 24 hours. So it comes back to baseline. Sometimes that's needed to force the adaptation. Um, And working at either end of the spectrum isn't optimal because if you don't have any pain whatsoever, so we're talking in a rehab sense right now, if you don't have any pain whatsoever, you may not be loading enough to drive the adaptation, but if you're consistently training at that seven to eight out of 10, then you're consistently overshooting. Your body's going to stay in this sense of high sensitivity and high pain. So with anything, usually shooting for that middle ground is, is where it's at. So why? would someone who's always training at seven, eight out of pain continue to train? Gotcha. So now you're starting to get into like more of the psychological aspect of training, right? So <laughs> I can answer that for you. They're probably junior age lifters. No, I'm just kidding. I'm yeah. just kidding. So, ju- juniors are, they're, they're anomalies. They can train like crazy mm-hmm. and some of them get superhuman strength and they adapt really well. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at your, your partner and, and they're training five days a week and you know, four times a week, they're squatting and benching and three times deadlifting and, and they're doing well. And then you go to do it, it might just not work for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if somebody's consistently training at seven to eight out of 10 pain, it could be a couple of things. One, they could think that that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. We have this no pain, no gain mentality. Uh, some people just this just have that. Um, other people get some sort of like mental, uh, in, in their own mind, they get a mental, uh, what am I trying to say? Arousal. They They- What's that arousal? Yeah. Yeah. That's from, from training painfully. Like it, it gets them going, right. The mm-hmm. adrenaline rush, like, oh my gosh, that's hurts. I got blood coming out of my nose. I'm training at RPE 50. Right. So there's, there's that mental aspect. And when, when I work with these people, they'll come to me, they'll say, I, 
it, it hurts seven out of 10 pain to squat. And I'll say, how long has it been that way? And they'll be like three, three years. And I'll say, well, if, if training at seven out of 10 pain was going to work, don't you think it worked? It would have worked by now kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So in, in the, in the pain world we call, and I really don't like labeling people, but this, this gets the point across. We have these avoiders and we have these persisters avoiders. The second they feel pain, they back off, they shut it down because, mm -hmm. uh, oh my gosh, I don't want to wreck myself. And mm -hmm. The other, the other flip side is the persisters. They'll say, oh yeah, eight out of 10 pain. That's okay. I'll just keep going. And then, so both sides of the spectrum, we need to try and find that middle ground. And it's funny because you can see those two different types of clients both end up in a rehabilitation state. Mm -hmm. Someone is training too hard. Things are breaking down. Now you need to get a knee replacement and someone hasn't used their knee in 30 years <laughs> and somehow it still needs to be replaced. Yeah. And uh, both working with, I mean, we, you see these clients in the fitness world too. They come in and maybe they're, you, they're, they're hesitant, they're nervous. I don't want this to screw me up. Or um, on the other side, they'll just, they'll just keep going. And so we see it both in the fitness and rehab world for sure. And it takes, it takes a different approach to work with each of these individuals. Mm -hmm. With your, with your training and your exclusive background, I want to talk a little bit more about back pain and we can okay. stay with the squat or then go into the worst exercise in the world. Some call it for your back, the deadlift. Um, but I want to talk some back pain because I have the feeling that, you know, out of a hundred people, you know, probably 80% of them are going to have back pain at some point in their life. And same with me. It just yeah. seems to be one of those things that everyone tends to fall into. Yeah. Well, um, it's not just something you feel. I mean, that, that is what the research says. And again, I can't spit the study out, but 80% of people will experience back pain at some point in their life. That that's just what it is kind of thing. Um, yeah. So what do you want? What, what route do you want to go with it? Sorry. How do you, okay. So we'll say with barbell training or exercising in general, people come and see you cause you're, you're the rehab guy and they've got mm -hmm. back pain. What are some of the common, um, symptoms they have causes and then treatment protocols you tend to go with? Gotcha. Well, some of the symptoms, there's, there's a bunch of different symptoms that can go on with back pain. And again, I don't like to sort of label people into categories, but I'll do it here just because it's, it's sort of easy to understand. So one of the biggest things, and you saw this in the workshop is I like to call the dreaded lifters, low back tweak. That's when you're warming up for a set of squats or a squat, a set of deadlifts. And you're, you're like on a warm up weight and then boom, all of a sudden it feels like something for lack of a better term snaps in your back mm -hmm. and you just get debilitating pain. And you wonder like, how did this happen? It's, it's like 50% of my one RM it's on a warm up weight. And then for seven days, it's like living hell. You can barely walk, you can barely move. Um, so that's a really scary for the individual. That's a really scary thing to go through. So I've gone through it a couple of times. And the, the biggest thing when, when treating back pain is as, as a healthcare provider, the first thing you should always do is what's called a red flag screen. You want to make sure that, in other words, you want to make sure that something serious isn't going on. And a couple of things you may look for is, did you lose control of bowel and bladder? That's one big thing. Most of the time, the answer is going to be no. But if you did, then we're looking at something more serious. We got spinal cord involvement. Did you lose? Another thing would be, did you lose sense of immediate sense of feeling or loss of motor control? In other words, can you no longer feel your legs or move your legs? Um, and I always say this, I have to preface with these because I wouldn't be do, doing my due diligence if I didn't. So we always recommend doing a quick red flag check. 99.9% .9 of the time, those things won't be there. 
But the good thing is, if they're not there, the odds that it will get rapidly better within six weeks or less are very, very, very good. So that's what we do. We bombard as a, as a strength coach, as a personal trainer, as a physical therapist, if somebody tweaked their back, it feels God awful. But if there's no red flags, the odds are good that it's going to rapidly get better. And this is what we need to be telling people. Mm -hmm. I use language such as, Hey, like, depending on how well I know it, I might say, Hey, I know this feels like shit right now. Right. I, I know it feels God awful. And I know you feel like you can't move. I know you feel like everything's locked up, but there's no red flags here. And uh, I want you to trust me that things are going to get rapidly better very quickly. So we just bombard these people with positivity if there's no red flags. So that's where I start for sure. Okay. So this, this snap you said, you talk about, you've been through it. I think anyone who's done any barbell training at some point in their life, they've been through the snap. What is happening? What is that snap? Is something actually snapping in your back physiologically? What gotcha. is the back goes out? Gotcha. So physiologically, what is most likely going on is, well, let me start what telling you what's not going on. So there's enough evidence out there to say that your spine itself does not go out of place. So this is based on an older model and all medical professions are guilty of it chiropractic, physical therapy, anybody that works with the spine, DOs, we're, we were all guilty of it, of saying this idea that the spine goes out of place. Um, it doesn't. The spine is super strong and resilient. And if your spine actually did go out of place, um, you'd be looking at like serious issues, like serious neurological issues. So the spine doesn't go out of place. So sorry, means, just to clarify for someone listening, is this what we're talking about? Some people might say, I uh, slipped a disc. Gotcha. Um, usually, yes. So a, the idea of a slipped disc, um, yes, we, we is synonymous with the back going out of place. And it, it simply just doesn't do that. But as you know, the spine makes noise, right? If you move a certain way, some things can pop, you can feel cracks. Um, and all that's going on is the there's gas and fluid in the joint. And sometimes when you move a certain way, it releases just like if you like crack your knuckles, right? Oh, that was good. Same, same concept. So what's that? That was a good one. That was good sound. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't done it in a couple hours. So probably that's why they were. <laughs> so what can happen is this, um, when you, when you, when you do, when you're lifting, sometimes the, the back can cavitate. That's the word for um, the, the joints moving, causing an audible sound. And if for some reason the brain, I mean, we can go into the whole pain science thing. If for some reason the brain perceives that cavitation as something that is harmful to the body, it'll lock everything up. The, the low back will go into spasm. Uh, because our, our brain is super protective of our low back because it's like the core of us. That's why it's called the core. It's our, so sometimes if there's anything that's wonky going on there, like, oh, it cavitated or it cracked under load, boom, everything spasms up. It goes into protect mode. The brain does this because it doesn't want to miss something dangerous. So it goes into overdrive. Um, so that's one thing that could happen is that that pop could be a cavitation or just a a release of gas and fluid in the joint that the brain overreacts to. Does that make sense? Yep. hundred percent. The brain's protecting you and the back goes out. So that's why that yep. happens. Yeah, exactly. So you know, like if your back goes out, you're not going to do another rep. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. The brain's like, I just put the brakes on you're done. Yeah. So, and I, I don't even, and I would use caution with even saying the back going out because even though now you and I know that it doesn't, 
I am very hesitant to use that terminology because then we could reinforce the idea that it does. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so the, the back goes into super protect mode because um, and, and how much protect mode that it goes into is based on a ton of factors that we could do a whole podcast on. Have you had a back tweak before? If you have, it's, your brain's going to remember that and it's going to mm-hmm. go into protect mode a lot quicker than somebody else's would that's never had a tweak. So people can get caught in these cycles of tweak mm-hmm. after tweak after tweak because now the brain's just on high alert at all times. The second it feels something wonky down there, there we go. We're going to spasm up to go in protect mode. So yeah, it's a vicious cycle that people can get caught in. With it being the new year, a lot of people are going to be rushing to gyms whenever they open, depending where you are, where I am, and they're going to be into the gym and someone's going to tweak their back mm-hmm. and then they're not going to work out for a few days and they're going to go see their, their physician and the physician's going to say, go get an x-ray Ugh. or go get an MRI. What's your take on that for, for, you know, um, documentation? Is that good? Like, should people be going to get an x-ray? Should we use the, the data we get from that? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I can, the, the answer would be no for that. Um, so I just made a, a back pain course called spinal resilience for people that are fitness forward, right? So this course wasn't for fitness and rehab professionals. This was for the athletes that go through back tweaks and what we, what we recommend and what I'm trying to educate people on is how do you do a quick red flag screen on yourself? So you tweak your back, you go to the gym, you just got a membership. It's the new year. You're going to level up your fitness game this year. Cool. And let's say you tweak your back. I'm trying to educate people that, okay, do a quick red flag screen on yourself. Did you lose control of bone bladder? Did you instantly get numbness down the legs? Did you lose feeling in your legs? If the answer is no to all three of those, then you don't need to rush to the doctor. You Mm -hmm. just don't. Um, but if the answer is yes to one of those, then, then you would. So that's why I always say that. So um, I, I think you, you don't need to go get an x-ray and you don't need to get an MRI right away. And me as a, as a healthcare provider, your x-ray and your MRI doesn't mean anything to me because I'm treating you based on how you move. So x-rays and this over imaging, because what can end up happening is you might find things on there that have been with you for 20, 30 years. And, um, the, the physician may erroneously blame your pain on it. So your x-ray may come back. Uh, so you tweak your back, you go to the gym, you tweak your back. And let's say the scenario of what you just mentioned happens. You tweak your back, you run to the primary care, they order an MRI and it shows a disc bulge. And the physician says, you have a disc bulge. That's why you have back pain. Well, what we know is that if we put a hundred people in an MRI in their forties. So we put 140 year olds in an MRI without any back pain, half of them will have a disc bulge. So these things are just kind of there, right? Um, and they're very poorly correlated to pain. So I don't recommend running out, getting an MRI, do a quick red flag check, make sure that nothing serious is going on and Give it a week because the odds that it'll drastically calm down within a week are very, very good. And if it doesn't, then reach out to a rehab professional. Um, you don't need to go to the orthopedic surgeon for routine back pain, for sure. Yeah, you're, you're hearing a lot of people who they go this route, they get the back pain, they go get the MRI, they're told they have bulge discs or herniation. Then what's the next step? You're going to wait X amount of weeks till you see an ortho. Then they're going to book you in and then they're going to do a spinal fusion. And um, I don't know if you ever read the book uh, Crooked. 
Um, no, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Catherine um, uh, Rankin, Catherine Rankin wrote it. And she's a journalist and she just went through back pain for a long time. And then she went through her whole process and pretty much explored everything. And she digs deep into it's it's big money. It's good business if you, yeah. do, if you do back surgeries and stuff, but also very low, very low success rates and there's well-known guy in the fitness industry who's on his ninth or 10th back surgery um bodybuilder we all know who he is and and poor guy's not doing too good these days but what, what's your thoughts on spinal fusions is there a time and place for someone to get them have you ever yeah. rehabbed or worked with anyone who had one? Oh yeah I've, I've worked with plenty of people that have had spinal fusions uh some lifters the majority of them were uh just regular folks that i when i was working outpatient physical therapy so what the research currently says is that sometimes back surgery is just is necessary, unfortunately, but the, what is, what we're seeing better outcomes with for back surgery is when leg pain is involved. So sometimes when there is a true herniated disc, like that is just pushing on a nerve root, causing re unrelenting leg pain, shooting down the leg that is bringing somebody to tears Sometimes just going in there and doing a microdiscectomy, which is just trimming away the part of the disc that is pushing on the nerve root can instantly relieve people's pain. So the, the outcomes for micro, I'll get to the fusions in a second. The, the outcomes for these microdiscectomies for people with unrelenting shooting leg pain can be good. The problem is when we just automatically go to fusion for chronic low back pain. So that's where the outcomes aren't. So if somebody just has that chronic low back pain, doesn't have any leg pain and they go and get a fusion, the outcomes are poor for that. And the complication rates are, can be high in some circumstances because it's this idea that the spine is inherently unstable and we need to fuse it to make it more stable. And I, I forget the number off the top of my head, but humans, like our physiology hasn't changed at all in the last 20 years, but the rate that we're doing spinal fusion at spinal fusions at has skyrocketed mm -hmm. because they're big money. They're real big money. Yeah. 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 From step one, from that first appointment to the drugs you might be on for mm -hmm. multiple years afterwards, it all adds up. Yeah. So someone comes to you and they're like, listen, I got back pain. I was told I need to get a spinal fusion. A mm -hmm. friend of mine said he saw you, you helped him out before. I want to exhaust all options. Mm -hmm. What would you do or what would you look at for that individual first? Gotcha. So when back pain is involved, there is a huge, the word we use is psychosocial component because when it comes down to it, pain is not purely driven by things going wrong physiologically in your body. We treat pain now on a biopsychosocial approach, which is three prongs, meaning biology, which is the way the, your physiology, the, the, the way your body is structured, the psychology, what do you think about your back pain? Do you have false beliefs about your back pain? And I'll, I'll give you a good example. And the sociology, is your back pain causing you to miss out on things you enjoy? And if that's the case, all of these things can actually exacerbate pain. And a prime example is this. If somebody believes, like believes that their back is out of place and that the only way that they'll feel better is if they go get it put back in place by a chiropractor, by a physical therapist, somebody trained in manipulations, guess what? Their back's going to continue to hurt until they go get it put back mm -hmm. in place. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what I do in when I'm working with people with low back pain is 
a lot of times education can help desensitize their body because if if somebody if you can get them to believe that just made it sound like I'm lying to them. If you can, if you can get them to understand that, Hey, your spine is actually strong and stable. It's not out of place. Then suddenly they can start to feel better because now they no longer, now they no longer feel, okay, I, I know I don't need to go get it put back in place and they start to feel better. There's actually research out there that education alone can lower pain. So it's pretty wild. So I make sure that we handle it from a giant biopsychosocial approach. Yeah, I read that about 40% of people actually take medication they're prescribed, but mm. some placebos have a 60% success rate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, if you want to get into a, anyone listening, you want to get into a profitable business, get in the placebo business. Like if there was a way to just make placebo drugs, you might be more beneficial than, 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 than yeah. other alternatives. So I mean, like half the supplement industry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, same thing, same thing. Yeah. So, uh, so, so with the back stuff there, you would, you would look at those three models and then where does movement come into play? Are you a big movement guy or like, Hey, your back's absolutely. off, your movement's not good. This is where we start. Absolutely. So, um, movement itself can help people trust their back more and it doesn't need to be rigid. So, uh, over the, like the last 10 years, there's been different models that come out that say, Hey, if you have back pain, do these three exercises, Right. Some things I'm thinking of are curl ups, bird dogs, right? There's, mm-hmm. if, if you have back pain, do these three exercises and you get fixed. But what we're, what I've realized and what we've realized as a profession is it's not more about doing specific exercises. It's what kind of movement can the client do that their brain perceives as healthy. And when they do that, that's what helps them desensitize their entire body as a whole. So it's more or less finding movements that are tolerable versus doing very specific movements. So I'm super movement forward, but I'm really less rigid with it. So if somebody comes in with back pain and we find out that they feel really good bending forward, but it hurts a lot to bend backwards, guess what? We're going to do a lot of forward bending because that's what their body likes right now. And we need Mm -hmm. to bombard their body with something that feels good to them so that they can begin to reassociate movement with being healthy. And then after that, we work on restoring movements that are painful. So there's a big approach to that. It's very individualistic. Um, and in my opinion, there's no really specific exercises that are necessary in order to overcome pain. I think that makes perfect sense. Whether you have a forward flexion based injury or hyperextension based mm-hmm. injury, then you got to pick the right protocol, but you got to know the injury. Not all back pain is the same across the board. Exactly. And that's what I really, and it was so tough. That was really what I tried to do with that spinal resilience online course that we just uh, wrote out was how do I make a program that's, that will help everybody. So I made it like a really algorithmic approach was like, if it hurts to bend forward and it feels good to bend backwards, take this route. Mm -hmm. If it feels good to bend backwards, but hurts to uh, go forward, take this route. If everything hurts, then take this third route. So there's, there's different, so there's different approaches you can take. Um, So there are some common themes, but within those themes, there's gotta be individuality for sure. That's a phenomenal idea. And I think anyone listening who works in fitness would benefit from that for sure. And then you've got another, um, one of your modules, you talk about strength training, the post-operative client. So yeah. working in the fitness industry, that that's not a common course or module to learn about. So I'm very interested in that. Like, uh, what does that look like? Gotcha. So 
I, when I was working in outpatient physical therapy, I, I saw this all the time. People would, people that didn't have a fitness background, like didn't exercise at all. They would go, they would have pain. They'd get a knee replacement. They'd get a hip replacement. And then what do we do in physical therapy exercises? Some of these folks would really enjoy them. They're like, oh my gosh, I like exercise. I want to continue this after I'm done with physical therapy, but then they'd be scared. They're like, I don't want to jack up my knee. I don't want to jack up my hip. Should I go see a personal trainer? So then I was like, absolutely go see a personal trainer. So then I thought are personal trainers armed with the knowledge to how to work with clients that have had surgery have gone to physical therapy, have been discharged from physical therapy, but still have mobility limitations, still have low levels of pain. Are personal trainers and strength coaches armed with how to modify exercises for somebody that had a knee replacement 10 weeks ago, or somebody that had a rotator cuff repair four months ago? Because the thing is, I don't know how it works in Canada, but in the United States, people are getting discharged from physical therapy before they've returned to full function just because of insurance restrictions. Yeah, it's so, similar, similar here. So I wanted to make a course that armed fitness professionals with, hey, these these clients, have they're, they're done with formal physical therapy. They've been they've gotten the go ahead from the physician to continue exercise, but how do I make sure that I regress these exercises to meet the demands? So I was pretty pumped about that. So we go through all different kinds of things, knee replacements, meniscectomies, ACL repairs, uh, hip replacements, labral repairs, all three types of back surgeries, microdisectomies, laminectomies. So we go through it all. And each module sort of breaks down the different body parts. That's pretty wild stuff. Cause I can say, I haven't heard that being offered elsewhere. And there is that gap within, um, um, therapists and, uh, personal trainers or strength coaches. It's, is literally that time period. Everyone's discharged. Yeah. You're able to go back to the gym and then the trainer's like, I think we'll leg extend. I think we'll leg press. Um, and I can say, you know, I'm surrounded by a handful of different colleagues who work pretty good. And a go-to where I am is, you just contact the therapist and say, exactly. what do you want me to do? But you're saying you now have a course that's going to actually bridge the gap together. Yeah. And, and I always have to say this because uh, I've had like nasty comments on the Facebook posts where people be like, why are you teaching fitness trainers how to rehab? And I'm like, that's not the point here. These people have had surgery. Mm -hmm. They've gone to physical therapy. You can't stay in physical therapy for a year mm -hmm. just because of insurance. They've been cleared by both the physical therapist and the physician, but guess what? They still have deficits. So do we, do we not teach fitness professionals how to work with these people that have deficits? Everybody loses that that way, right? So I'm here. How do I make a course that helps people? Because this, the matter of the fact is fitness professionals work with people that have mobility deficits and pain. That's just the matter of fact, because pain's a common aspect of life. So I'm in the can tell I'm starting to get heated. <laughs> I'm in the mindset that fitness professionals should know how to work with people that have small aches and pains, and they should also know when to refer out. So that's what I do with all my courses where we say, Hey, this is what you can handle. If a client presents this way, this is what you should try and handle first. And if that doesn't work, then refer out. I like that idea because when you work with someone, you might get them for that six to eight weeks after the injury, after mm -hmm. the surgery, and based on insurance or mindset, you send them on their way. Mm -hmm. But personal trainers, strength conditioning coaches, I mean, we're spending two to four hours a week with someone. I I've got clients I've been with 10 years. 
Yeah. Like we have a relationship now, right? Yeah. So just think about that. If you work with someone, let's we'll say three hours a week for a full year, you can really influence their health or you could hurt it. Yeah. So if you did, if everyone has a little bit more skill mm-hmm. and they can work with someone and help them, just imagine that the impact. So yeah. for anyone on your Facebook page saying the wrong stuff, maybe they just need to think, think about who wins here? Everybody wins yeah. when the trainer is more qualified and, and, yeah. and then the, the therapist knows that someone is going to be doing good work afterwards. And at the end of the day, the client wins. Exactly. Because what's the alternative? There's two alternatives. Alternative one is they don't go to a fitness professional at all and they just wing it at home, mm-hmm. right? They've been discharged from physical therapy. Physical therapist says you need to keep exercising. So they say, okay, and they just wing it at home. So that's not an alternative or we don't arm personal trainers with how to work with these folks. And then the personal trainers wing it. That's not a good, so we're just trying to educate people. That's it. Right. So there's always going to be people that are like, Oh, uh, this is outside of the scope, but I'll I'll say this. And I have a clear line where, and, and I always say this, how this works. If somebody has pain and you're working with them as a fitness professional. If that pain can be eradicated with a form adjustment, an exercise change, or an exercise modification, that's within your scope as a fitness professional. You're not treating, you're not assessing, you're not putting your hands on them, you're modifying the exercise or modifying the dosage. If the client still has pain after a dosage or an exercise modification, refer out. I make it sound simplistic, but I, I think it is. I, so that's, that's where I'm at on that. Well, you started off in the beginning about a hybrid model. You said yeah. everyone in physical therapy is now using this hybrid model where they're combining exercise with treatment mm-hmm. and the hybrid model benefits everyone. And I think trainers are, 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 should be in that route as well, where we should have a few more skills. And at the end of the day, who wins? The client wins. That's it. You got it. So that, that the timing is actually just perfect here. And I'm very aware of the time. I don't want to take up too much time for our listeners. So you talked a little bit about the courses here. What are the exact courses that you're offering at the Spinal Resilience Online course? Mm-hmm. So the Spinal Resilience Online course is for folks that are actually exercising that want to learn how to self-manage their back pain. I've also had a good bit of fitness professionals sign up for this, for the pure educational aspect, because they want to learn too. Mm -hmm. But the the target audience for that is I want to help as many people as possible self-manage their low back pain. So that was spinal resilience. We just launched it that week, um, that this week. So then we have our flagship online course, the one that you went through, the Barbell Rehab Workshop online course. That's where we teach fitness and rehab professionals everything we just talked about. How do you coach the lifts? How do you modify the lifts when there's pain? So we go through the squat, bench, deadlift, and overhead press. And excuse me, how to coach and modify them for people with back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain. Uh, yeah, I said back, knee and shoulder, the big three. So we've, we've had a ton of people sign up for that over a hundred countries. The last time I checked and it's CEU approved for all, all organizations, NASM, NSCA, everything. Even, can, you even can fit out here in Canada. Pro, yeah. I got you guys approved there. And so is strength <laughs> training, the post-operative client. So the strength training, strength training, the post-operative client is also for fitness and rehab professionals. And it shows you how to work with clients that have had these surgeries, have gone to physical therapy, and now are in that in-between phase. And that one's also approved for CEUs. And we've had tons of people go through that. So those are our two courses for fitness professionals. And we will see, I'm hoping to start up some live courses, very low uh, uh, 
class size uh, here yeah. in the United States and uh, this year, and we'll see how that goes. So, yeah, because I know I know you do all your stuff live. You flipped it all onto the online model, which yeah. is what I saw. Um, so you know, I when I took the one, I sat in and I kind of saw how, how you operate, and I can say it's some really good information. And you were nice enough to actually give a little bit of a discount to any of the listeners here. So I'm going to link that into um, the show notes, mm -hmm. as well as how to contact you with um, barbellrehab.com and your other social media stuff there. So I, I want to formally thank you for taking the time to come on the Project Fitness Podcast. And I just got one more question for you. Are okay. you a Penguin fan? I am. Okay. Okay. For you sure. know, you know, your boy Sydney's from where I'm from. Yes, I do. Yeah. He's in the East coast of Canada. I've been a penguin fan since 84. I mean, I came out the womb yeah, and my right. dad was a big Lemieux fan. So anyone in my circle into hockey, they know I'm a huge Pittsburgh fan. So it's nice to find another one. There's not a lot of you here in Canada. <laughs> I was at the game that they won the Stanley cup. I can't remember the year, but I was definitely there in Pittsburgh the year they won. So I, it's awesome. I, when I went to a uh, PT school, I lived a block away from like one block away from the penguins arena. So, Oh man, I'm so jealous, but I'm also very happy you took the time to be with us today. So I will formally say thank you very much. Stay positive in life, negative in COVID. And I, I hope to see you in person sooner than later. Appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for awesome. having me on. Thank you, Mike. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.